in today's world, you have to learn how to write. Selling, writing, virtual, and video. Somebody has to deliver the mail. Somebody has to be mediocre. But the 5% of the 10% that rise to the top, it's not 80-20. It's 90-10. Let me throw something at you. Salespeople got lazy because not just of the selling process, but their diversions. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Smartcast and Najahi Events. More about these awesome sponsors later. Now, today's episode is all about sales, sales, selling, how you sell, why you sell, what you do to become a great salesperson. My guest, I followed this guy for years, like literally years. I bought his books and everything. So he's a bit of a legend to me. He's known as the king of sales, an American author, professional speaker, and business trainer who writes and lectures internationally on sales, customer loyalty, and personal development. He's written more than 15 books, including the New York Times bestsellers, The Sales Bible, The Little Red Book of Selling, The Little Black Book of Connections, and The Little Gold Book of Yes Attitude. His books have appeared on major bestseller lists all over the world over 500 times and have sold millions of copies worldwide. His last book, Get Shit Done, The Ultimate Guide to Productivity, Procrastination and Profitability, is much more than just the title of this book. It's the method that unlocks the secrets of accomplishment and achievement, the GSD secret formula. Now, please, please, please pay attention. Even get a notepad for this one, because this guy is a legend. The awesome Jeffrey Gitomer. Organizations such as Smartcast, who are solving the problem of food security in the world, have supported this podcast because they believe in the mission that I'm on. When you understand the work that they do at trying to solve the problem with this massive population growth we've been having over the years and providing a way of bringing food safely to everybody, it really is something I admire. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. So from one passionate salesperson to another passionate salesperson, can't quite believe I've actually got you on the show. We've had so many guests over the years, 200 episodes plus, and a man that resonated with me so much with his words from his books and his videos when I was the guy going out making the sales. Jeffrey, thank you so much for coming onto the show. My pleasure. You couldn't find that guy, so you got me. <laughs> I was that disappointed. I was looking for the red overalls, but never exactly. mind. <laughs> well, um, actually, I will tell you that I think it's important to appear to an audience as a normal person rather than somebody in an Armani handcrafted suit, which you can, you know, you can obviously get in all parts of the world. If you go to Hong Kong, you can get one in 20 minutes. So I, I look at myself as a person of value. And if I can transfer that to the audience, then it doesn't matter what I'm wearing. As long as I'm wearing something, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to be too risque when you're in front of an audience, but you want to be perceived as normal yeah, and approachable accessible and approachable. That's the word accessible and approachable without a doubt. And I, and I learned that myself, you know, over the years we had a uniform at work and it was always dark suit, black shoes, black belt, white shirt, double cuff, stripy tie, and always try to look uh, as imp impressionable as you can. And I, there's a little bit of my mum in this though, Jeff, this, my mum would always judge somebody by how clean their shoes were. If somebody couldn't keep their shoes clean, then my mum would not often buy from them. You know, that was a, a marker for her. And I think that that kind of resonated with me. I was, the, I was the kid every night, got home from work, suit hung up, polished the shoes, making sure the next day, a brush in the car, also brushing my top drawer at work just to make sure before the meetings I had clean shoes on. But I just think that the world slowly started to evolve and change. And as it has changed, people have started to accept that uh, or adapt really to your your ideas and your belief system that was you know many many years ahead of what the rest of the world were thinking. I judged people early on by their fingernails, by their shoes, okay. and by their belt. 
Because if, if those were solid, like if their fingernails were not bitten, you know, people bite their nails, it's a very big telltale sign of their nerves or their self-esteem or whatever their circumstance. And then if their belt is not worn or frayed and if their shoes are shined or their designer level, you know, women now wear golden goose sneakers that are $600 a pair. And that's a, that's a telltale sign of who they are. It's a status symbol. But it's also personal pride. So my pride is my belt is always good. My shoes are always good. You know, there's nothing. And my hands are always good. I can't do anything about my hair. It's gone. <laughs> but I want to feel as though the other person looks at me and says, oh, I can approach this person. I can talk to this person. And then there's a secret. And the secret is once I get to talk to someone, is my message transferable to them? Do they say... I get it. I agree with it. I think I can do it. I'm willing to try it. If I can get those four things into my message, then everyone wins. Mm, agreed, agreed. Tell me then, how did you get into sales? Well, I didn't start out thinking I was going to be a salesperson. I started out thinking I was going to be a business person like my dad, who manufactured kitchen cabinets and countertops and metal parts for the government. And his father was a businessman who sold plumbing supplies and stuff like that. But I didn't realize that sales was the fulcrum point of it. So when I got into business myself, I said, oh, wait, I'm the sales guy. And if I don't sell anything, nothing's going to happen because I have to bring my image out to the street, to the other people. And I was just a hardworking person and I made a lot of sales. I didn't, I had the gift of gab but it wasn't until I was involved in my own personal business for a few years that I realized I had to learn the science of selling. Selling is a science. And so I got, when I got that opportunity, literally, Spencer, I sold my business and hooked on with a direct marketing, direct selling company, which at that point was called multi-level marketing. And I learned the science of selling for four hours a day for a year. Every morning, a sales lesson from 8 a.m. until noon. And I booked, everyone else went out for lunch. I bought, I booked an appointment every day for 12.01 because I was on fire after I took those lessons. What was it, because I'm, this really resonates with me and I'm sure many of our listeners now, just, just tell me, who was it that inspired you to, treat it as a science and realize it was a skill and not just someone that was extroverted and a good communicator. And like yeah. you say, the gift of the gab, where, where did that come from? Well, I read think and grow rich 10 times in 1972, 10 times. And that was the inspiration for my positive attitude and my drive. I was involved in a business there was a multi-level marketing company that was owned and run by Glenn Turner. He, he owned a business called Dare to be Great. And it was all about motivational whatever to try to get people into their multi-level scheme, which eventually went south for the winter. But I gained skills that were not replaceable, just not replaceable. And then my dad and I went into business together to do a mobile home park in Florida and I went into the imprint sportswear business by investing in my own company with two other guys that said they knew what they were doing, but it turns out they didn't know the story. Um, but the challenge is I got in because I realized that I was able to sell somebody something that I had. I was able to convert um, in, in the mobile home business. I could sell somebody a, a, a lot and a mobile home. In the imprinted sportswear business, I could sell uh, T-shirts to a famous company um, because of my skill set. And so I realized that I had this ability to transfer my message and people loved it. I'm literally making million-dollar sales in New York City. In New York City. It is arguably the hardest place to make a sale in the world. But it's also the easiest place to make a sale in the world because all the people are receptive and have money. 
So you have to convince them that your value is greater than your price. Just that simple. Value greater than price. And so I'm looking at this and saying, okay, I can now do anything I want. I can be anybody that I want to be. And my evolution brought me to consulting with other people um, in the late 80s. And that, you know, I started out at 100 bucks an hour. 100 bucks an hour. And my goal was to bill $1,000 a day. That was the goal. Okay. And, and I did, because I would bill for my prep time as well as my consulting time. Okay. <clears throat> so did you... When you when you when you look back at those times, did you did you have more fun selling a product or did you have more fun consulting? I had more fun consulting, but it was never ending. If you sell a product, it's like here, goodbye. Oh, I need more. OK, here, goodbye or promote. But when you're selling consulting, somebody's always. Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And they would never let me go. And finally, I had to end those relationships because I began to write. And when you begin to write, everything changes. Everything changes. Because you become an authority, you're no longer an expert. Yeah, an author becomes an authority. That's this right. changed everything. Yeah, uh, little red um, It was my fourth book, but it's now the best-selling sales book of all time, millions and millions around the world. And so, when you get that, what happens is people are affirming or confirming the fact that I can help them. More people buy it. More people give it away. More people. It's, it happens thousands and thousands of times, and so that is now my impetus for moving forward. I have training programs online. I have certification programs online and in person. And I do seminars for corporations, big sales teams for big companies that have budgets. That's my whole process. I don't, yeah, I've never been to China because no one's paid me to go to China. I've never been to Dubai because no one's ever paid me to go to Dubai. I've had a couple people flirt with me, but no one has actually said, oh, I'm, I'm ACHing you the money. Okay, I'll be there. I can't wait to have that ticket because I want to fly on Emirates and I want to have a business class ticket. But <laughs> so we'll see what happens. But I'm right now doing more writing than anything because okay. writing lasts forever. Let me, yeah, it does. You have a legacy, don't you? Let, t take me back to when you were a kid. Did you have a privileged upbringing? Did, you, did your dad do really well for himself? Was it? Yes. Was it My family was very successful. I grew up in, let's say, an upper middle class family, um, member of a country club, pretty much go wherever we wanted to go. Uh, my father, very benevolent. And if anyone in our family didn't have enough money to send their kid to college, he would pay for their tuition. Sent my uncle to medical school. You know, that it did the things that you're supposed to do. And this is the secret, Spencer. Every person who came to our house also owned their own business. And so I'm getting all these lessons from people without ever going to college about how they ran their business. And my, my dad played cards every Thursday night, played pinochle with four three other guys. And I would sneak downstairs and hide behind the wall so I could hear their stories. You don't hear those lessons in a college textbook. Um, you know, someone will try to cheat you out of money or bounce a check or uh, an employee has a problem where they stole from you. I mean, there's things that don't happen in a university setting, but they happen in real life. Mm -hmm. And I realized early on that I wasn't going to learn how to be successful in college. I was going to learn how to be successful in business by being a businessman. Did you consider yourself a salesman or a businessman? Yes. What, what were you? What did you in your mind? I was, yes, I was both. You had to be okay. a businessman to run your business. But if you weren't a salesman, you died. You had nothing to do in your business if you couldn't sell something. Why do you think it is that 
so many entrepreneurs that start business want to get a business going don't pay as much time and attention to learning the skill of sales as they, they might think they can hire skills. a sales guy and all their <laughs> problems are gone that's no bueno you hire a salesperson to replace you and the same way you hire a bookkeeper to replace you the same way you hire a warehouse manager to replace you whatever you whatever you do in your business you're hiring a replacement not someone that's doing something you don't think you can do if you're not so if then, you're a sales manager or a company owner and you're not better than all of your salespeople, no one will listen to you then then that says to me everybody that starts out as an entrepreneur as a small business that they want to grow that says to me that you 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 have to you have no option but to learn the skill and the art of sales That's otherwise correct. you're otherwise you're you're giving yourself an odds on chance of failure and you have to in today's world you have to learn how to write selling and writing um Tell if you want why. to take it even further selling writing virtual and video those are the four elements today that will never go away because the 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 world closed down for a couple of years and everyone became familiar with whatever platform they could go on video. And all of a sudden, every company now, Zoom and Facebook, and they're all video centric. YouTube started it online. And, um, you know, I was very successful as a YouTube participant. Um, I think I started my channel in 2008 and I have millions of views of my videos because I put them up there for other people to get. I just looked at one yesterday. It had 718,000 views. That's phenomenal. That I affected that many people by watching the video. And I think that there's an ability for anybody now to go online, blog, write a book. You know, the, when I started on Amazon, there were a million books. There's now 6 million books on Amazon. Okay, let me let me take you to a time in my life when when in 1993 I'd gone to live overseas and I became uh, a wealth manager, financial advisor, whatever you want to call it. And the place that we would get information from back then was either the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times. That's the kind of that's the hub. We, we would get a fax once a week come through from Fidelity with market updates, but that was pretty much where data came from. And so, and there weren't Bloomberg or CNBC and all this kind of stuff for people to tune into. There'd be a bit of business news on CNN and a bit of business news on BBC, and that would be it. Right. And so, most people didn't really understand uh, about money, how it worked, how to invest, and that kind of stuff. So, it was my job to educate them. And so, they really needed to trust in the person that they were being advised Correct. by in this example. You fast forward now to 2022. Everybody has all of that information at their fingertips, literally Correct. as much as you could possibly ever consume. But that to me, in my experience, has led to the customer almost becoming paralyzed because of too much information being available and not, not sure which direction to head in. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Um, information is overwhelming. However, for the salesperson to come into a sale right now, and start to talk about his or her information, I'm numb. I don't want to hear it. I can Google it and find out about it. So I'm asking a salesperson, where's the value? Where's the perceived value? Why should, why should I want to meet with you? And the answer is I probably don't. But there's one element that will separate you from every other person. Uh, Bob, I know we have a meeting tomorrow. I'm going to Email you my slides tonight because my slides are pretty boring. But I'm coming tomorrow because I have a couple of ideas for you that I think will help your business. And if you like them, all I'm asking is that you run with them. It's fair enough. But see, that means you have to have an idea. Mm -hmm. That means you have to do research. And you have to put yourself in a position where you're a value provider, not a salesperson. And I want, I want to be that value guy. If I can come to your place, wherever you are, or to come to your event company, wherever you are, and provide the audience with valuable ideas, I'm going to win. If I don't, I'm going to be, they'll never have me back again. And so, I have customers, so I have customers 
that are that I'm in my 12th year of doing business with them. They won't let mm -hmm. me go because of simple years. ideas. I have a I have a client of mine from when I lived in Sao Paulo in Brazil from 1996 that's still a client today all those years later and doesn't talk to anybody before he talks to me and that that comes down to not not uh, client service but that comes down to loyalty from the customer is your customer exactly. your client loyal to you and a lot of people are very short term thinkers so they don't they don't really take advantage of that but also i find that lots Lots of salespeople, let alone business owners and entrepreneurs, but lots of salespeople don't grasp. You know, when we go back, if I go back to the days and, and talking to you takes me back. So forgive me, all right? Because it just it's takes okay. me back to when I was a sales guy. When I was young and we were selling, there was, there was no value you could add. Back then, you had to get in front of them to be able to add the value. You know, you had to get in front of somebody first. Now, you could be referred or recommended, but you still needed to get in front of them. Yeah. Nowadays, nowadays, you must bring the value first. You've got to be demonstrating that you're correct. valuable before anybody is That's even correct. interested in talking to you. But so many salespeople, even to this day, and Dubai is awash with salespeople, predominantly real estate, but many, many salespeople that still fight, push back, resist, reject the fact that they've got to bring value first through their social media channels, whether that's LinkedIn or whatever it might be. How do you persuade salespeople to understand and apply this type of logic? Okay. So I try to do it by example. I'm walking into a CEO of a fortune 500 company for a meeting. And I could say to him, hi, I'm Jeffrey. Here's my business card. Or I could say to him, hi, I'm Jeffrey Gittimer. I brought you this first edition signed copy of the Little Red Book of Selling to begin our conversation. Oh, oh, thanks. Actually, I have a copy, but now I have a signed copy. And so I put myself in a different place by being here. But there's something that people don't understand. You don't get this overnight. This takes hard work. And you don't get great at selling in a day, you get great at selling day by day. And so when I went in to visit other Fortune 500 company CEOs without a book, I still had the guts to be able to sit down with them and provide them with an idea or provide them with something that, they, that I felt they needed and, and go from there. I didn't have to brag about myself. Um, and I, I made a, a video of the five best sales I ever made in New York. Um, it's quite entertaining, but I had to leave out a lot of the swear words. Um, <laughs> because in New York City, swear words are a part of the vernacular. Yeah. But the, the challenge that anybody has who's in sales right now, you have to walk in and be a value provider, not a salesperson. And if you don't walk in with some kind of something that I'm going to perceive as not that you think is valuable, like a value proposition, which is bullshit. I yeah. want to be a value provider. I'm going to walk in and say, listen, I've been studying your business. I've been studying your customers and I've been studying you. And today I have one thing that I think will help. Okay, cool. What is it? Not so fast. <laughs> and so you, you put yourself in a position where they want to hear you. They want to listen to you. Because most of the time when you're in a sales position and you're pontificating about your bullshit, if the guy runs out of coffee, coffee will be, yeah, just a second. I need more coffee. You're less <laughs> important than a cup of coffee. I, I want to make sure that your audience that's listening to this understands what the real challenge is in today's market. The challenge is, can I Google you and find out something about you that impresses me? I, I don't understand why more people don't do it. They won't put in the hard work that it takes to make selling easy. To, to me, when it comes to you know, being a value provider, a lot of people, I don't know, let, why don't we take real estate? It's probably a good example. A lot of people that have kind of surrendered almost to pr producing content are only producing content around the product that they sell, you know, a house and apartment right, or whatever exactly. it may be. And, and Yeah, absolutely. And so it's just always about product, 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 rather than, who are you as a, as a real estate broker? Who are you? Okay. What is, what is the value you bring? What can you do for me that other real estate brokers can't do? Well, I don't want to ask you these questions. I want to learn about it before I have to ask these questions. Correct. And so that, 
when I come to wanting to list my home, I know who I'm going to talk to. Okay. I've got it up front. So I'll give you an example. There's a young lad from Northern Ireland that's a real estate broker here. His name's Connor McKay. Lovely kid, 24 years old. And he's been in the real estate game for three years since he was 21. And he's a hardworking, hustling, value-providing sales guy in real estate. Now, he just sold the most expensive property in Dubai recently for $80 million. So you can imagine that he had got quite a bit of commission out of that happy days. And I've, I've begged him not to spend all the commission, but I think he's already gone. But never mind. <laughs> he's, he's only 24. I said to him, how would you get the deal? He's like, Spencer, he said, number one, there was a property being built. And I kept going backwards and forwards to the property to see if I could bump into the owner. And I went every week, popped in just to see there were architects and plumbers and electricians there. I'm like, great. He said, but the owner was never there. Then one day I turned up and I saw a Bentley outside and I thought he'd better be there. And so I walked through the building site and I found the guy and I just said to him, look, I've been coming backwards and forwards. I've been watching this developer. I've been taking pictures of this. I know some people that might be interested. I'd love to talk to you at some stage in the future when you're free. So nice approach. Okay. The, the guy said, yes, no problem. How we got the buyer for the property once it was agreed to be listed is that the buyer's daughter had a property with a tenant in that she couldn't get out. And so he worked his socks off to help get the tenant out. Okay. The daughter was over the moon. And when her dad decided he wanted to buy a property, she said, you've got to speak to Connor. Wow. So to me, that's, that's cool. real yeah absolutely oh, yeah. it's re real yeah. value you know real value yeah. and he I probably i mean he might hear this and a lot of people might not know this story because that's actually what happened and i think a lot of people misunderstand you know oh i've got to do this i've got to run around here i've got to put this effort in you know if they paid me then maybe i'd do it but when you know there's an opportunity to convert big ticket sales and a big commission you've got to be valuable and now so it's not always about just producing content there's other ways to be valuable too okay that to me is all about being valuable so that you can be referable. Every marketing person should tear up all the shit that they've written up to this point in time and focus on outcome. What happens after the customer takes ownership? What happens after the product is delivered? What happens after the service is performed? That's marketing. Just to tell me about your bells and whistles on your copy machine, I don't give a shit. I want to know what happens on Friday at four o'clock when the copier breaks down and I need a thousand copies. Mm -hmm. Tell me that story. Yeah. And so uh, I'm, I, I, you have to put yourself in a winning situation rather than a selling situation, a winning situation rather than a selling situation. Big D do you, do you, how do you train that? Um, first of all, the salesperson has to have a deep belief in what it is that they're selling. I mean, deep. There's five elements of it. Got to believe you work for the greatest company in the world. Got to believe you offer the greatest products in the world. Got to believe you're the greatest person in the world. Got to believe you can differentiate yourself from your competition, not compare yourself to differentiate from differentiation is value comparing is price and the fifth element is you have to believe that the customer is better off having purchased from you and you cannot believe that in your head you have to believe that in your heart when you have that deep of a belief system and you add it to your attitude and self-confidence you win until then you're a sales guy yeah, let me tell you a little bit about my business. Go away. Well, let me tell you about how our product works. Go away. I can Google anything you're going to tell me. Tell me something I don't know. I noticed that, that we went from an era where we would have to get ourselves up and running, get some clients, and then get referred to other clients yeah. and or other prospects. And getting referrals was me a demonstration that the client trusted you. That's why they Correct. refer you to the people they know. So that's standard procedure. And for me, the best quality referral you can ever get is Jeffrey calling me up and saying, hey, Spence, I've heard about what you do. I'd love to buy some of that stuff. Exactly. That's, that's Unsolicited referral. referrals cannot be beat. It's it's It's... It's as good as a sale. 
as good as a sale. That's right. Absolutely. Okay. And, and, you know, and even a referral where you call them up and said, Hey, Jeffrey told me to give you a call. And that person goes, Oh, Hey, thanks so much for your time. Uh, thanks for calling me. I, was, I told Jeff about you the other day or whatever it might be. That type of call is not the best, but it's still better than all the other stuff that goes Correct. on. Now I now, would try to, we, there's a third way. And that is that the person who's going to refer me calls that guy for me and says, Hey, Jeffrey's yes. going to call you. That's yeah. That's good too. Do me a favor. Yeah. I would also I would also have this competition with people when I was selling about not how much business I would write, but we'd always have competitions about how many referrals we would get. And so it yeah. wasn't about how many sales you made, how much commission you earned. It was like, right, how many referrals can you get? Let's, let's challenge ourselves. And I used to say to myself, if I if I get 45 referrals a week, I know for a fact, okay, that they could be turned into 30 phone calls, which can be turned into 15 meetings, which can be turned into 10 meetings seen. So that was what it was for me. That meant I had to, I would see two new prospects a day. My conversion on that was whatever it might be. But to get 45 referrals a week, I had to get nine referrals a day. That's four and a half in the morning, four and a half in the afternoon. So I challenged myself to get the, the nine in the morning. And so I was, I was so focused on this. And we used to have this fact-finding process we would use. On the back of the fact-find, used to have referrals written at the top with a list. And it used to have four referrals as, as, as uh, the number of lines across the page. And I'm like, why can't we just make it 15? And they were like, why are you going to write 15? No one's going to give you 15 referrals. I'm like, why don't we just try it? Just print, print, print 1,000 fact-finds out with 15 on the back, even if they get three or four. They're not losing out. And so what then I would do is I'd sit down with people and I'd say, right, I need to get some referrals. So what my referral pitch was? And I'd start going through the referral process and they'd give me one or two referrals and then I'd keep my head down and just with the pen in my hand and I'd write another one. I'd ask them some more questions. I'm like, look, the reason there's 15 uh, spaces here is because most people give us 15. I know I'm not going to ask you a 15 today, but why don't we settle on 10? Okay. And people would give you 10, you know, you'd get to five. Okay. Five more to go, six, four more to go. And you'd get the referrals. Do me a favor. Just send them a text message, will you? Just let them know I'm going to give you, give them a call. And so for me, it was just like, why would you want to do it any other way? Why would you even consider selling any other way? I don't so, want to go and see someone cold. I want to see someone who's referred. When I ask for a referral, it's more subtle. Who else do you think I can help the same way I've helped you? Oh, no, no, no. Understand something. My pitch, I used to have five referral pitches that I used. I've got 26 that I know. I'd have five referral pitches. And if all else failed, it would be, please, can you help me? Okay, that was yeah. the last one. Okay, but I used to use the 80-20 principle an awful lot. I used to say to people, look, it's other people that, that I know, or that you know, that I don't know, that probably in a similar situation to you that could probably do with some help. I don't know them, and you probably do. Now, I'm not going to expect you to be their financial cool. advisor and know okay, what their finances good. are. Okay, right. So- Referrals, 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 referrals. And if you had enough referrals every week, you'd have leads until the end of time. It would never be a problem. So what then happened is technology came in and people started to do lead generation online. And salespeople, I believe, got lazy. They got lazy because lead generation could be done through Facebook ads or whatever it was. However, the quality of those leads overall, in my experience and from companies I work with, I'll say politely, were shit. Yeah. And so you've That's got a bunch polite. of shit leads. And so the guys would get on the phone and they'd be calling up these crappy leads. But the penny wasn't dropping where they would go, you know what, these leads are so bad, I'm going to get referrals and learn that skill. Bingo. They would just say, give us better quality leads, company, because yeah. these leads are shit. Let me throw something at you. Salespeople got lazy because not just of the selling process, but their diversions. And so now people have an evening of beer or wine and Netflix instead of getting ready for the day. And that's one of the other issues. I never went to bed until I was ready for my next day, ever. Everything lined I still, up I still day, don't. the following day. I still don't. And I, I can afford not to. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm, when you have a habit for 30 years, you pretty much keep it. I have a morning routine. Same routine for 30 years. It works. And I'm only going to do it 30 more years and then that's it. I'm going to quit. Let's talk about writing and books then. Because, you know, for me, you, your books really resonated with me because they were easy to consume, simple, um, not using convoluting language, but just something that uh, myself and 
all of my salespeople over the years could use quite easily. They were always kept in their top drawer. We'd always go back and refer to it. The little book of yes, the the gold book of yes was one yep. of the big ones for us. Um, and as I said earlier, before we started recording, I remember buying 250 of them. Oh, I remember asking somebody too. Um, she didn't. She was like 250. Um, and, and we bought all these books. I, I wrote a book, okay, and it's called Making It Happen: The Ultimate Guide to Sales. And I found I found writing a book a real labor, and I won't say labor of love because there's nothing I loved about writing the book. So, how did you find the enjoyment of writing books? I began by not writing a book. <laughs> I, every week I published a column on selling and selling skills and attitude and personal development in a local business paper. And then that became syndicated. And so every week I'm writing 750 words to thousands and thousands of people. And I said, once I have a hundred of these columns, I got a book. So I never wrote a book. I just wrote 750 words a week until it became a book. So I sort of started on accident. But since then, I've discovered and I teach, I bring people to our beach home in South Carolina and teach them how to write a book because you don't have to type anymore. Mm -hmm. You can be a phenomenal writer if you just listen to what I tell you to do because I've written 17 of them. I know what to do. Mm -hmm. I know how to do it. And I have a publisher that will look at your book for potential distribution. You don't, you can't do it yourself anymore. It's just not feasible. You have to do it with a publisher who has distribution capability. When I wrote my first book, I've only written one. What am I talking about? When I wrote my first book, when, when I had that, I, I was perceived differently. Oh, don't all you? of us. All of a totally. sudden, I was an, an author, which made me this authority almost. And right. people were desperate to get their hands on a copy here in Dubai. And it, it just changed how people perceived me in the world of sales. Correct. 17 you books later. You differentiate yourself I mean, from what is that, competitor. What? You yeah. Different, and you put yourself in, a, in a le literally a leadership position. You become an influencer rather than a salesperson. Are you, I mean, 17 books later, are you, have you exhausted what you can write about or is there still more? No. Why? You want to know and one of my look, books? You want to know one yeah, of my next on. books? You know the book from good to great? Yeah. Jim, Jim Collins. Okay. I'm going to write from shit to great because you're not that good. <laughs> what a title. <laughs> it's halfway done. But... Um, that's the kind of thing that I do. I look at what the market will take right now. And I try to put out a book that will allow them to absorb it. So I wrote a book on going live. I wrote a book on getting, you know, doing, being more productive. And that is what salespeople need. I give salespeople information that they can use immediately. And it's fun. Now, there's a secret. I don't use adverbs and I don't write in the first person plural. We all know our, that's bullshit. You're the writer, they're the reader. I write an I or you, but not we. I'm not we. Mm -hmm. I'm not in the audience. I'm the guy on the stage. Why, why would I say I'm just like you? I'm not like you. I got a, a red work shirt on. You don't. Okay. So, let, I don't want to talk down to you. I'll be on the same level with you. I just don't want to, want to include you in my in my in my speech. Mm -hmm. That's not my that's not my thing. Okay. So let's I don't do, use let's, adverbs let's, and I don't use first person plural. And they're subtle, Spencer, but that's what works. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just thinking about the books and your books that I've read. And, and yeah, right. you're right. You can, you, I defy you to go to my book and see the word we. Let, let, let's talk about, because you just hit on a word then that really kind of like interests me as well. And we talked about productivity. Mm -hmm. you know, salespeople, considering, you know, a lot of the work they do is outbound. They're, they're hunters in many respects rather than farmers um, because 
because they've got to go and find their new clients or whatever it may be. They get a lot of them I get don't paralyzed. want a hunter or a farmer. I want a relationship builder. Okay. So how does a relationship builder learn to be a relationship builder and get shit done? Okay. And then how do they learn to become more productive? Because productivity seems to be in many sales businesses, seems to be an Achilles heel of many salespeople. They're not ready. They're not, they don't believe deeply enough to go make the phone calls. They won't do the hard work because their depth of belief revolves around money rather than helping. And so I'm, I have to look at those people and go, you know, somebody has to deliver the mail. Somebody has to be mediocre. But the 5% of the 10% that rise to the top is not 80-20. It's 90-10 or maybe 95-5. And you, know, you can identify who they are easily. They win the prize. They go to the president's club. They, they're the top performers. They're in the same company with everybody else. And... I'm doing something now that I'll explain offline about how I train companies and their sales teams to win bigger percentages of sales, which is really what they care about. That's all they care about. I, I want to produce more. I want to get more. Even, even in retail, if the average customer spends $15 in the store, I want them to spend 20 And if you have 1,000 customers don't, a day, just easy. Save it. T- tell us. Yeah. Tell us now. So let's look at it from the perspective of salespeople have become lazy because of the because of this and because of the internet. And so I mean that's part of the challenge. And it's a it's a big challenge. It's a big, big challenge. So um, what do we what do we do about it? Um, hire more believers. Hire people that love what it is that they're doing rather than like what it is that they're doing and challenge them. And this is pretty interesting. You and I can become friends because we have history. Right now we have a relationship. Mm -hmm. I'm challenging you. Let's make it a friendship. Because if you become friends with someone, you can do anything. Mm -hmm. Go to their house stay with you for a week, drink your beer, um, you know, uh, play with your kids, drive your car, anything. I, I have people come over here all the time. They, they can live here if they want to because we're friends. Mm-hmm. And relationships are great. Turn them into friendships. And then you can't, you can never lose. Agreed. Agreed. That obviously takes some time. Let's just go back and analyze. It does take time, but you know what? My European friends who have some of whom I've been friends with for 30 years, never go away. You can pick up where you left off if you haven't seen him for five years. Yeah, I agree with that. So once you learn how to do that, you win. Okay. But most people, uh, let's be realistic about this for a second. Okay. Most, most sales companies, let's say they have a hundred salespeople working for them. We've obviously mm-hmm. got the top performers at the top. You know, what is it Jack Welsh used to say? You know, you've got your top, te- top 20%, your middle 60%, your bottom 20%. Get rid of the bottom 20% because they're never going to make it anyway and you're doing them a favor. So just get rid of them because it's, it's in their best interest. They're yep. not there. But actually, what you're saying, most of those people aren't going to make it anyway or aren't going to be big performers. Does a sales team need, and this is a question that I don't know the answer to, it's not a loaded question. Does a sales team need mediocre performers as well? The answer is a qualified yes, because within that frame of mediocre people lies their next great salespeople, if you can inspire them. So you hire someone and they're, they're medium to start out with, can you inspire them to become great? And you can almost see who they are. You kind of know who they are. You, and you can feel it. Oh, this guy's going to be phenomenal. This guy's going to be great. This guy's not that good. He's lazy. Then and do you think then, I, I agree with you. 
So do you think then that a lot of companies when they recruit salespeople don't recruit in the right way? They just want to get some bums on seats or they're, or they're seduced no. almost, you know, when they, they, what do they say about interviews? You know, that you'll know in the first th you know, th three minutes or whatever it is, whether you like them or you don't like them. And then Correct. you spend the next hour looking for things you like about them or looking for things you don't like about them. Correct. We're confirming it. Yes, or confirming it. So then salespeople through the interview process, it, let's say you and I were going to set a company up tomorrow. We're going to build a sales team. We're going to, we're looking okay. for 10 guys, all right? Me okay. and you, 10 guys. Right, let's crack on, Jeff. Okay, Jeffrey, you're in charge of recruitment. What's the process? What are you looking for? What, 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 are, what are your minimum requirements? I am not going to place an ad in a paper saying that I'm looking for great salespeople. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do what creates attraction and I'm going to put the word out that I'm looking for a couple of people that can really produce and I'm going to pay them well and I'm going to provide them with opportunity that they couldn't get any place else. And I'm going to become Googleable because if I'm not, if I, if the, if the guy who's thinking about working for me, Googles me and there's shit about me on glass door or there's shit about me on Facebook, I'm going to lose. So you Google Jeffrey Gittimer and you go, wow, look at this guy. I eat, I, I, Philadelphia is where I grew up. And I don't live there anymore, but I go there two or three times a year. And there's places that I go to eat the food of my city. And one of the places is in a, a terminal, an old train terminal, that's now like a food hall. The people are there. So this one guy's been there since the 50s. Mm -hmm. He serves the best roast beef brisket sandwich in the world. He retired. His son took over. I've become friends with his son. But we just shoot the breeze back and forth. I was in Philly a couple of weeks ago, and the kid comes over to me. He goes, you know what? I finally Googled you. You're kind of a big shit. And I go, yeah. And he goes... <laughs> Can you send me a couple of your books? And I go, sure. I said, on one condition, I don't want anything for free. You treat me like a regular customer. I give you money. I'll give you a couple of my books. If you like it, maybe we can put a program together for a couple of the people that are here that want more. Uh -huh. Then we can talk money, not sandwiches. It took years for this guy to finally try. I didn't say, hey, I'm a big shit. I just went in and made friends with the guy and crapped around with him and you know, talked about the Phillies, talked about, you know, teams. And and finally, he Googled me. I gave him my okay. business card. Yeah. And he Googled me. Okay. So that's the process that we, we've got to consider. So my experience has been as follows. I've lived in 10 different countries, built, built teams out in each of those countries. I've, I've been one of the top guys in my industry in terms of sales over the years. I don't do it anymore, but I was. And every time I was relocating to a new city in a new country, I had people in the in the company saying, can I go and work where Spencer is? Can I go and work where, you know, can I go and work for Spencer? And I would ask the question, why do you want to come work with me? And it was almost like they felt I had some magic dust I could sprinkle over them from the success yeah. that I had. Yeah. And that was okay. Fair enough. I understand that. If I was going to set a business up with you and you, you and I were going to look for to build a sales team, I think the first thing that I would do, okay, is I would go and go out and demonstrate with deliverables what can be achieved and go and achieve it myself. Because I know a lot of the time in management, Agreed. it's not, not, always, not always the top sales guy that's, you know, that's the great manager. But I really believe that if I'm, if I'm walking the walk and I'm delivering the goods myself, that you can't, you can't question me. You can't doubt me. And if you want to learn it, then I'm the best person to teach you. And so what happens then is that the marketplace, because of like the content that you would create around this kind of stuff, the marketplace would start to become aware or the competitors would become aware. And those people working for those companies would be saying, what is it that Jeffrey and Spencer have got? What are they doing over there? They seem to be, yeah. you know, doing really well, building a great business. I want to be part of that. Would, would, you, would you agree that that's important too? Yes. It's critical, but there's a strategy that you can use that I've used before with some of my customers. Let's say they sell copiers. Let's say they sell insurance. Let's say they sell uh, uh, sportswear. I would call their biggest customers, get the buyer 
and say, who do you like to buy from? Now I have my target. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Really good one. Like that. I put a $10 million sales team together in under 30 days with that strategy. Wow. Really? Yeah. How did you get hold of the buyers? Call them up and ask for them. That's nuts. Tell me what you think, you know, you, you and I come from a sales background, but I look at, I look at retail sales. So mm -hmm. uh, sh uh, shops, shopping malls or restaurants as well. And when you have a, a great experience at a restaurant, it's invariably not the food that was the great experience. It yeah. was the great experience from that waiter that was just awesome. The manager that took time and care that gave such a great experience that I don't know whether it was the best steak I've ever eaten. It was a good steak. I mean, I don't know if it was the best one, but my God, I'm going back there because I had such a great time. And when I look Agreed. at, okay, when I look at restaurants that do that well, and I look at the, 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 the shopping centers and stuff that, that, that don't do that well, I feel really bad because I think people working in a department store need to be taught how to train, uh, how to sell better, how to engage with client relationships Agreed. better. And it's but almost like they're left behind, aren't they, to some degree? Yes, they are because the company won't invest in their training. Yes. People don't want to sell more of their crap. People want to be successful. And so I teach success, not just sales. Let me throw something at you as well. There's a restaurant chain where I live at the beach. And I saw the owner one night at the restaurant and I said, hey, you don't know me. Uh, my name's Jeffrey Gittimer. I've, here's a couple of my books so I could just to introduce myself. But this is my challenge. Let's say the average ticket here is $42 a night. I can make it 52. Interested? Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm going to have lunch with that guy next week. Let's see what happens. I, w I want them to hire me so I can teach them to upsell. And the yes. strategy at a restaurant is to go at the table when the customer is just there and say, listen, we're short on desserts tonight. Let me know what you want now. And if you're too full at the end of the meal, I'll wrap it up and you can take it home. Fair enough. Brilliant. Love that. What a line. I love that. Pay attention, folks, to this. That that was a, a brilliant, brilliant sales oh. line. You might not have picked that up, but just listen to what Jeffrey just said. That is closing out on a three-course meal before you've even started. Exactly. Because they, they And then I'm going to say to the people, I have a bunch of specials, but most people who come to the restaurant already have something in mind that they want. Which one is it for you? Because I go to a restaurant, I know exactly what the hell I want. I don't, I don't care about the Bernays sauce and the, I want lobster tail. Leave me alone. And, and, and that way, the waiter has endeared himself or herself immediately and will get a bigger tip. Here's another thing, because this, really, this is really pertinent, actually. When a waiter remembers my name. Yeah. Okay, that's so as good. That's as good as another booking. I'm going to throw something. I, I told this guy as well. Like, one more thing. I said, listen, I'm going to train your staff. And I, I'm going to offer them two different courses that I have. One is exceptional customer service. And the other is tip doubling. Which one do you think they want? Same course. <laughs> Same course. I just planted in their head that they can double their tips if they do this. It's, it's, it's like, it's so obvious, but yet it's just missed so much, isn't it? It's just it's such way too obvious. Sense. It's way too obvious. It's, it's almost ridiculously, ridiculously when I, when, obvious. When I got into sales, I went for a job interview in the, in the office equipment industry, as I told you earlier. And I, and my, I said to my mom, I need a suit. And she said, okay, well, there's some money. Go buy a suit. So I go to this store in this local town this, that sells suits. And so I go in there. The, I'm looking around. I've never bought a suit before in my life. I'm uncomfortable in the wrong you know, environment for me. I'm, like, I'm 17, 18 years old. And the guy said, well, what are you looking for? I said, I need a suit. I've got a job interview. He said, well, come on. Why don't we just try some jackets on and see which one you like? And so I was like, okay. And so he, I think he measured my chest. He said, yeah, you're probably that. And so put a jacket on. Now, he put the jacket on. He said, 
well, you've got your jeans on, so maybe you want to put the trousers on as well. And I was like, yeah, okay. So I went in the changing room. He said, well, you can't stand there with your sneakers on and your suit. So let's give you some shoes. Anyway, he gave me shoes. The only thing, the only thing that was on my body was my socks and my underwear. <laughs> the rest of it, okay, right. the shirt, the tie. Do you remember right. the tie pins all those years ago? The thing there, and the, yep. the, the, the thing. To, I had the lot. I had everything, and I walked out of that shop, and I didn't know what had happened to me. I felt a million dollars, and I went home and I said to my mum, "Yeah, I've got it." And she said, "How much did you spend?" And I told her. She's like, "How did you spend that on a suit?" And cut a long story short, obviously the guy was an exceptional salesperson. Of course, but. He made me feel a million dollars in that just that forty five minutes it must have, and I just I loved I loved the experience and it gave me such a you know when I then learned about sales it gave me such a respect for what he did I didn't know it at the time I just felt great but when I learned about sales I was like man oh man oh man that guy is a salesman a brilliant brilliant salesman and again just so you know I bought a green suit with a cream shirt and black shoes with green laces what the fuck you know when i think back on it <laughs> but that's, funny. that's what it was <laughs> yeah but listen the bottom line was you believed the guy yes and he believed so if too. You're not believable it's not gonna it's not gonna work and so um there's some classic stories that i can talk to you about but our time is short um indeed give me one story the- before we go and then okay. give me one story and then tell okay. me and tell just before we go, I've got one story and I want to know about your latest book. That's it. I walked into a Neiman Marcus department store in Houston, Texas. It's the big overpriced department store. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know it. Yeah. And I go to the clothing department and the guy says, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'm looking for some overpriced clothing. And he, <laughs> and he says, you've come to the right place. Okay. <laughs> So I wanted to buy a couple of shirts and I said, listen, I said, can I try on a pair of pants as well? I'm not going to buy them, but I just want to see what it looks like because I have jeans on. He goes, oh, no problem. So I go in the dressing room and I look at the price of the of a pair of trousers. It's $345 for a pair of pants. So I come out of the dressing room and I go, Aren't, I said, these are 345 bucks. Aren't you embarrassed to get this much money? He goes, you know, I used to feel that way. But when I felt these pants on, I found, I said, wait a minute, pal. Are you using feel felt found on me? <laughs> and he's like all embarrassed. And he goes, yeah, I said, stop using it. It pisses people off. Especially people that can sell. He said, well, what would you say? I said, well, I said, sir. If you want to look like a million bucks, sometimes you got to spend a few hundred. And he goes, that's not bad. And now he's saying, <laughs> what else you got? Now he's following me all around the store. You got anything else? What else can I use? But the challenge is if you keep doing it the way you've been doing it, it's over. It's all over. You have to be inventive. You have to be creative. You have to be new. And you have to in- inspire yourself. That guy used feel felt found for 20 years. He's an idiot. Yeah. He's an idiot. So I look at, I want to make it new. I want to make it renew or new. I think that, I think everything you do for a living, you you have to have fun doing what you're doing. And I don't know anything that's more fun. You don't love it? Get out of it. Yeah. But spending more, spending time with other people in sales that, because there's so many stories. So I'll give you one story. Okay, I've got this one. I went Go to ahead. see this couple, husband and wife couple, selling financial advice, needed to sell them a pension. I'm at their house and I'm literally ready to do the deal. They said, look, Spencer, before we make a decision, we need to speak to the Lord. And I was like, okay, and we need to make sure that that's it. So we're going to pray. And I'm like, well, I can tell you what, I want to respect that. I'll step outside. And so uh, I'm selling a savings plan to them, yeah? And so they went off to pray in the back of their house. I stood outside, outside the picket fence. I called my boss up and I'm like, hey, boss, boss, boss. I'm like, I've got this couple. They're deeply religious. I've got no idea how to close them. Got, they, they can't make a decision without praying. And he just said straight back down the phone, he said, Spence, tell them even Jesus saves. <laughs> you know, I had, that's funny. When I drove to college every day, I went across a bridge And there was a mission at the end of the bridge going into Philadelphia. And it said, Jesus saves. 
a neon light blinking on and off and, you know, to get all the derelicts in the city to come to the mission. And one night someone had broken into their place, gone up on the roof and spray painted Moses invests on the sign. <laughs> and it was there for years. Brilliant. Jesus saves Moses invests. <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. Right. Tell us about your latest book, please. Um, I don't want to. What I'd rather do is tell you that within another three months, the Little Red Book will come out in a classic edition. We've added 20 pages to it, and it will be, once again, a worldwide bestseller 20 years after its printing. And you mentioned this earlier. If you're in business and you don't own and read this book once, once a, pages from this book once a week, something's drastically wrong. And look, you don't need to you don't need to explain that. I'm a customer of you. That is a yeah. bible for salespeople. And I have got you know, anyone that's listening. You know, you know my sales background. Most of you guys, but you yep. should should for you all you viewers as well. You should have that book. It should be with you at all times. It's literally brilliant. Small one liners in there. Small quotes in there. Stuff in there. Little ideas. Uh, little, little approaches. Yep. Little reminders. All that kind of stuff is in there. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. Jeffrey Gittimer, I am so Thank glad you. you came to join us today. I could talk to you for hours. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, sir. Mine. Mine, sir. Cheers and peace.